Hello, everyone. Welcome to Snow Sunday, where I, Pastor Brandon, deliver to you a message from my office, which is nice and warm. And you listen at home, which is nice and warm, because outside it is wet and cold. It is Sunday, March 1st, and we had to regrettably cancel church tonight. Uh, something we never like to do, but um, it was the snow this afternoon had already surpassed what was predicted, and there was still supposed to be more to come while we were gathering at church, and we just decided, after some people had been driving the roads, called me and said, there are people in the ditches, it's really slick out here, and we just decided it's best not to gather. So, in lieu of gathering, here is your Snow Sunday message, in which we are going to look at a snapshot of hell. <laughs> yeah, a snapshot, because you don't want to look at hell for too long. But second, a snapshot, because the Bible, contrary to what many people say, actually doesn't have a lot to say about hell. Now, it says that there will be wrath and judgment and a day of end. It, it, it does say all that. I'm not denying that the Bible says anything about hell. Don't mishear me. But I have heard people overstate this point in which they say, Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven. Which always sends my mind whirling because he is full of phrases like the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about what the son of man's going to bring and where he's going and how he is talking far more about heaven than he is about hell. He occasionally will talk about the outer darkness and the ever burning fire. Yeah, but he does not spend more time on that than heaven. So I want to suggest simply take a snapshot look at hell. Um, another reason why I'm doing this today is because we just really haven't run into a lot of texts that seem to address hell directly. So we, we have as a fellowship, I don't think we've really talked about this doctrine of hell very much. And here's the thing. It's not a popular doctrine at all. Uh, a lot of Christians have, well, there's probably three reactions to hell. And I'm going off the top of my head right now. So hopefully this is somewhat accurate. <laughs> but um, there are people who overemphasize hell. And it seems like they cannot share about Jesus without sharing about the fact of hell. In other words, Jesus is reduced to someone who gets you out of hell. And unfortunately, so many Christians believe in Christ simply because they don't want to go to hell. It's a pity that they're missing so much pleasure in Christ. There's a second set of Christians who are very embarrassed about the doctrine of hell, and they may never actually deny it, or they do deny it, because, well, to them, God's a God of love, and you can't reconcile hell and love. And so you have had Christians who try to uh, say that hell doesn't actually exist. And then there's the rest of us who believe something, you know, in the middle. We may not like the doctrine, but we recognize that it's necessary or that it's there. We don't really know what to say about it. We just know that's there. But you know what? God's love is greater and we're focusing on him anyways, not hell. So what does it matter? Um, it's interesting when you look at the book of Acts that the messages portrayed there never mention hell. 
I find that significant because Acts is the book where you see the first sermons of the church, the first messages of the gospel going out. They're inviting people to join the Christian movement. And yet you do not see hell as a fundamental motivation for their preaching or for getting people to respond to Christ. There is a reference in Acts 17 when Paul is talking to the Athenians of Christ judging, but there's no mention of hell anywhere else in the book of Acts as a motivator. And it should cause us to reevaluate our focus on the emphasis or the place of hell in our, uh, at least in our message. And so therefore I say, I just want to take a snapshot of hell. This will not be exhaustive. It's going to be three scenes that I'm selecting from the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Bible. So, we're going to take a scene from Genesis, a scene from Luke, and a scene from Revelation. The snapshots here are not meant to show us what hell looks like, whether it's darkness or fire or hot or cold or where it is, whatever, those questions. Rather, the snapshots are to show us the type of people who inhabit hell. Because that's the most important question, right? Is what kind of a life is, uh, if you could say, worthy of hell? What kind of a life ends up going there? Because the first thing we want to dispel is the idea that God is upset. He's angry and grumpy. And if it wasn't for Jesus, he would just obliterate everyone. Uh, I think sometimes we have this thought that God has some sort of... um unmoved heart about sending people to hell. That, you know what? You're going to hell, and whether you're kicking and screaming and apologizing and saying you're sorry, and that now you believe in whatever, God's going to say, sorry, you had a lifetime to get your life together, and you didn't. Bye. I, I think sometimes we it's hard for us to stomach hell because we're thinking of that scene, when suddenly everyone's going to wake up and realize, oh my gosh, we were wrong, we're sorry. But what we're going to see in these snapshots of hell or in these snapshots of the type of people who go to hell is that that isn't the case. No one in hell is going to be regretting or wishing that they weren't in hell. They're actually, they're the type of people who cannot find any other place suitable for them. And in C.S. Lewis's magnificent book, The Great Divorce, he, it's a book really about the type of people who go to hell. He shows that the people cannot stand heaven, even if they were to go there. So, um, let's make sure we don't have this image of God heartlessly casting people into hell. People choose to go to hell and they want hell. That's what I think and hope we see as we look at these three snapshots. So, the first one, Genesis chapter 3, we learn from the trees. So, in Genesis chapter 3, to kind of remind us of what's happening here, we see that the serpent comes to the woman and begins to tempt her about eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, remember that there was the tree of life from which they would eat and would get God's life. They would get his power. Much in the same way that we go to scripture, we go to church, we go to communion, we go to prayer to continually receive God's life and power within us, right? It was a, it was a devotional act. It was an act of worship, an act of faith, an act of dependence and submission to the kingship and authority and power of God over their lives. That was the point of the tree of life. 
Conversely, the tree of knowledge was the opposite of all that. The tree of knowledge said, we can do this without God. We can run the world without his kingship. We don't need his rules. We don't need his guidance. We don't need faith. We don't need dependence on him. We're completely independent. We are autonomous beings. Auto, self, nomos, rule. We are self-ruling beings. That's what the tree of life symbolized. It's a temptation that still plagues us today. Every single day when situations arise or confront me, I am faced with the option. Tree of life, I will rely upon God in his way here. Or tree of knowledge, I will do this Brandon's way. Well, the serpent gives Adam and Eve the option. And they choose out of curiosity, perhaps, or maybe out of pure rebellion. Either way, they choose the tree of knowledge. And as soon as they eat from it, it says in Genesis 3, verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Oh no, they're now aware of a flaw They feel vulnerable. There's a sense of self and a need for preservation. Suddenly they feel like the universe isn't their friend. It's turned against them, right? They feel open, exposed, naked. This is how we feel in our sinful condition. We feel like God is out to get us. We feel like he's a monster. We feel naked and vulnerable, and we're going to do everything we can to fix our bad situation, which Adam and Eve do. So it says they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. In verse 8, And they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh. Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. They heard him coming and they hid themselves. This is so important to see. God did not say, how dare you out of my sight? He did not say that. They hid themselves. Why? Their perspective of God has changed because of their new condition, their vulnerability. So they hide themselves. Now, God has to coax them out in verse 9. But Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now, of course, text limits us. We don't know the tone of his voice. Was he saying, Where are you? Or was he saying, Where are you? One is angry and wants to punish, right? It's like when, Wait till your father gets home and now father's home and where are you? You're going to get a spanking. (laughs) Or, it's the father looking for his lost child. Where are you? I'm worried. I'm concerned. I miss you. Why is God walking in the garden? Is he walking through because, well, he's usually up in his lofty castle, detached from Adam and Eve and the rest of creation, but he decided to come down because he sensed a disturbance. He sensed something went wrong, and he's he's out to investigate? Or, is he walking in the garden because this is something he did daily? And he was looking for his companions, his friends, to walk with them. And when he comes to their regularly designated place, perhaps the tree of life, he doesn't see them. 
and he's hurt. He misses them. He doesn't want them to miss out on his life, on his goodness. Where are you guys? I enjoy you. I delight in you. I believe it's the latter. I believe God is yearning for them. He's looking for them. Because that's the tone of the rest of the Bible. From this moment on, God is continually saying to every single individual human, Where are you? Come out of the trees. Come to me. And he said, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Ah, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Again, God could be saying, Have you done this? But I believe he's saying, Oh, I think I know what's wrong here. You ate from the tree, huh? God's meeting them at their level. He wants and is trying to coax a confession out of them. Is that not how God deals with us today, even in our sin? Not, well, how dare you? I'm not talking to you, Brandon. No, but he continually, he convicts us, right? He presses on us and says, hey, you know, that wasn't a good choice, right? Let's talk about it. And so he does this with Adam. The man in verse 12 says, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Oh, Adam, that was the opportunity to say, Oh God, I'm so sorry. We did eat from the tree. And now we realize that you were right in telling us not to eat from it. And that you were always right. And that we are in the wrong. Please repair us. Please forgive us. We now believe that we need you more than anything else. That's how Adam should have responded. But instead, he maintains self-righteousness. He tries to justify himself to say what I did was right because I wouldn't be in this situation if it wasn't for the woman. So now he's blaming. They're hiding. They're blaming. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this you have done? Rather than saying, I'm so sorry I misled my husband, or that I suggest we eat from the tree, or that I talked with the serpent, or any other proper response, she mimics her husband. And she blames. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. That's akin to people saying, the devil made me do it. Friends, we're full of blaming words. We're full of trying to pass the buck to somebody else. And that is one of the conditions of hell. Hell will be full of people who refuse to take responsibility for their own mistakes. It's always going to be someone else's fault. It's always going to be circumstances out of their control. God is looking for not people who fail to mess up. No, rather, God's looking for people who own when they mess up and come to him for the solution to what they've messed up. But instead, we're so prone to, first, hide from God. And then, if we can't do that, then, too, we blame others 
or situations or God himself for who we are or what we've done. Hell is a place of hiding from God. Hell is a place of blaming everyone and anything, even God, and never taking responsibility. Now, I understand that in my reading of this, I am taking what some may consider a leap. I'm assuming God's friendliness here, and that the humans are the monsters. They feel like God's the monster, but it turns out they're the ones who are blaming God and saying he's at fault and trying to hide from him, right? Um, here's why I think that. I think that God would have forgiven them right then and there and restored them to his fellowship there in Eden and that there wouldn't be the fall. I believe that. I believe he would have forgiven them had they confessed, come out of hiding, and stopped blaming. The reason I believe that is because grace has always been God's nature. He didn't suddenly become grace when we sinned. He's always been grace. We cannot say God suddenly became grace just because um, he kicked us out of Eden. That's so far from the truth. Grace was meeting them right then and there. And what did they do? They blamed and they ran further into the trees. And when you run further into the trees, you're running directly away from heaven and into hell. That's the fall. And take the fall and prolong it into the eternal from here on out. That's what you get. There are those who come to God on their knees and say, well, we're sorry, Father. And there are those who hide in the trees and point fingers. That's the difference. One of the reasons Jesus took the cross was to bring us out of hiding and to end blaming. When Jesus was on the cross, he proved what Adam and Eve refused to see. He showed it on display so that we couldn't miss it. God's not the angry monster. That's what the cross shows. God came to be killed by the angry monsters. God came to the humans hiding among the trees, and they pinned him to one of those trees. He's showing us, I'm not the monster. You are. Come to me for grace for forgiveness, for restoration to the garden. And then he came to the cross so that he could kill the blame game. From now on, we can't blame anyone because God took all the blame on himself. He is, as Leviticus shows us on the Day of Atonement, and I believe it's Leviticus, uh, it's 16 or 17, I think it's 16, um, that on that day of atonement, when the sins of Israel will be taken away, they cast all the sins on one goat and sent it away into the wilderness. No more blaming, right? Jesus becomes our scapegoat. He says, no more blame game. I'm taking all of it on myself. So there's no more excuses. No more reason to hide from the monster. No more reasons to blame each other or God. Just come to me. I am the tree of life. And we can all be restored to the garden. That is snapshot number one. Snapshot number two is in Luke chapter 16. And here we have one of Jesus's parables. And so again, it's not meant 
to describe us, to describe to us what hell is like, but rather what are the people in hell like, okay? So this is the parable in Luke 16 of Lazarus and the rich men. So let's read it. It's Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Then the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment... He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So there's this rich man who has everything he wants. And then there's the poor man, Lazarus, who has nothing. He's sick and ill. Both of them die. But now in um, the afterlife, their roles are reversed, right? Now Lazarus gets the good life and the rich man doesn't. So, but watch the character. Watch the essence of the soul of this rich man. Verse 24. The rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things? But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and no one may cross from there to us. And the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I want to make four interesting points from this parable. And by the way, I've been aided greatly in my insights from Tim Keller. So to give proper credit, uh, he, he does an excellent job with this passage and has really opened my eyes to what's going on here. Uh, in addition, C.S. Lewis's um, writings, both in Mere Christianity and The Great Divorce, also highly influence um, both Keller and myself in how um, I understand some of these things. So you'll be hearing from both, uh, I'm sorry, you'll be hearing from Lewis uh, in just a moment. I have a couple quotes, but so four things to be pointed out in this passage. And the first is that notice that the rich man never asks to be freed. He admits the place of torment, but he never asks to be let out. Why? Wouldn't that suggest that he needs help? Wouldn't that suggest that he isn't autonomous or or independent? Wouldn't that suggest that he needs a savior? All the things he's been pushing away for his whole life. 
But so notice, he never asks to be freed. He's not there pleading for mercy from God. Yes, he wants a little relief, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, but he's not pleading and saying that God is unfair and he's just, he's just in anguish and saying, I wish I could get out of here. I just wish God would hear my pleas for forgiveness. None of that. Never is that uttered. Second, he offers no apology. He shows no remorse and he seeks no repentance. Notice that there's, there's absolutely no, I was wrong in his tone anywhere. In fact, you hear the opposite kind of language from him. He wants others to do his bidding, which we'll get to at point four. Point number three, he is never named. Lazarus, the uh, the poor man, he's named. But this rich man is never named. And isn't that interesting? It's as if he had lost his identity in his wealth. His wealth had become his identity and thus his God. And so when he no longer has his wealth, he no longer has a name. We must be so careful about the things in this world we wrap our self-understanding or our identity around. Because when it's gone, what's left? What's left? That's why we need Christ. He comes and rescues us from our dependencies on every and anything else. So that when everything is taken away, what's left? Your position in Christ. That's eternal. That will remain. That's who you are, the New Testament says over and over. You are in Christ. But this man was in wealth. And when wealth went away, so did his identity. Hell, Tim Keller writes, hell is one's freely chosen identity apart from God. One's freely chosen identity apart from God. So this man chose wealth. His freely chosen identity apart from God on the trajectory of eternity. So take that identity and multiply it by eternity. That's what this man has become. Or very um, graphically, N.T. Wright writes this. When human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship, not only back to the object itself, but also outward to the world around. So another, what, what Wright's saying here is that, look, our worship begins to shape our identity, begins to shape our sense of who we are, begins to actually shape the substance of our being. He continues, those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than as human beings. Wow. You're going to see the rich man do that in just a second. Right continues. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sexual objects. Those who worship power 
define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. These and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways, all of them damaging the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and of those whose lives they touch. My suggestion, Wright is saying, my suggestion is that it is possible for human beings so to continue down this road, so to refuse all whisperings of good news, all glimmers of the true light, all promptings to turn and go the other way, all signposts to the love of God, that, after death, they become, at last, by their own effective choice, beings that once were human but now are not. Creatures that have ceased to bear the divine image at all. Those creatures that still exist in an ex-human state, no longer reflecting their maker in any meaningful sense, can no longer excite in themselves or others the natural sympathy some feel even for the hardened criminal. Whoa. Let me catch you up here. Wright was just saying that you lose, through idolatry, you so empty yourself of the image of God that you no longer reflect a human being. One can wonder, and you've heard this question, you maybe thought it before, how are we going to feel when we see loved ones in hell? Wright just potentially answered a question. If, if, his, if what he's saying bears any semblance of truth, we won't even recognize them as humans to be pitied anymore. What a sad state. And so the decisions we're making now in who or what we worship is beginning to take our soul on a trajectory toward that eternity, that eternal um, being of who we will be. We're either enhancing the image of God in us, in which Paul said Christ is the image of God, or we are draining ourselves from the image of God, letting idolatry in the powers and darkness of this world, i.e. Satan and his minions, sap us of the image of God. And you've seen it. You've seen sin-hardened lives, even in this life, rob people of who they once were. Imagine that set to the trajectory of eternity. We're getting ahead of ourselves because that comes into play in our next and fourth point. Notice that the rich man still wants to command others. He still thinks he's the important one. He's the rich one and everyone else is at his bidding. Who he was on earth is carrying on into eternity, and now it's being magnified by eternity. You see, friends, eternity is the trajectory of a soul going on forever. Eternity is the trajectory of a soul going on forever. Hell, Keller writes, is where one's self-absorbed and self-centered trajectory goes on forever. So this rich man, being stretched on into his self-centered, self-absorbed, commanding ways, 
or as Lewis points out, in a single life, your shortcomings may not seem like a big deal. But imagine, imagine someone's anger being stretched on for eternity. What kind of a monster is created out of that? So um, you, you, maybe you forgot, but over and over, he's commanding people, right? He, he commands Abraham, hey, Abraham, tell Lazarus to come serve me. And tell him to dip his finger in water and put it on my tongue. Does this guy realize what's going on? Then he's commanding Abraham, go, go, uh, go tell my brothers, right? Go warn them. He's, he, he does not get it. He doesn't get it because this is, this is the essence of his soul. He has made the habit of commanding others, of thinking he's more important of others, of identifying himself with his wealth and therefore, um, seeing and projecting that identity upon other people, um, as I'm more powerful than you, you're, you're my commodity, you're to serve me, you're a business plan, whatever. He's, he's done this long enough that his soul's been conditioned this way. So even in eternity, it's going to keep on living this way and it's going to become an expert at living this way. So that even if Christ came to him and said, would you like out of hell now? He would not have the ability to say yes because he's hardening himself in his life pattern, the soul has been deformed. The image of God has been drained. So if you want to think about virtue, virtue is simply the habit of good deeds. Vice is the habit of bad deeds or of idolatry. It's hard to break a habit, especially when you've been doing it for hundreds and thousands and millions of years. Now there are, C.S. Lewis writes, a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were going to live only 70 years, but which I had better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse. So gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true... Hell is the precisely correct technical term for what it would be. So that's C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. And now, in a very memorable moment in The Great Divorce, he writes this, Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But... There may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself, going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing, which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud." We see these qualities in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And now finally, for our third part of the snapshot of hell, we go to Revelation chapter 21. And here, hopefully, we end with something that is comforting for us and terrifying for those not of Christ. And in Revelation 21, we see the open gates of a new Jerusalem. The open gates of a new Jerusalem. So, in Revelation 21, verse 25, we see this. 
Well, actually, I'm just going to start. Let's just start with this passage. So, uh, in Revelation 21, verse 15, we read this. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold, John describing what he'd seen in his vision, to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length is, uh, the same as its width, and the measure, and he measured the city with its rod 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. So it's a cube, just like the Holy of Holies was, just this is on a massive scale. One commentator said that the distance here is equivalent to the Roman Empire at the time John's writing. So it's the Roman Empire converted into the Holy of Holies. Or perhaps this is John's way of saying, the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh has finally covered the earth as the waters cover the sea. Both Isaiah and Habakkuk say that that will happen one day. Then, in verse 17, he also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Now, in verse 18, the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. So in other words, if the gates aren't shut by day and there is no night, the gates are always open. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is despicable or detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The gates will never be shut. To show us that it is not God's thumb who is holding people in hell. It is their own free will that keeps them in hell. As we saw with the rich man and Lazarus, as we saw with Adam and Eve, there are qualities in the human heart that will, by free will, by free choice, keep us in hell unless the grace and glory of God awakens us to see he is not a monster. He is grace and his arms are wide open, wider than the gates of the new Jerusalem to receive all. The gates are wide open forever. It isn't God who sends or keeps people in hell. People send themselves and people keep themselves in hell. Also, for us who may be wondering after hearing some of this and going, oh, I'm not so sure I've got the right qualities for this heaven place. I sound more destined for hell. Please hear. We are not saying that your works 
are the basis of judgment, right? Yes, they play a factor in shaping your soul, but it is our identity in Christ that saves us. But here's the thing. We cannot come to Christ unless we reverse some of these hellish qualities within us. We must come out of the trees and show up to Christ. We must stop blaming him, others, or the world around us and confess that we are in the wrong in order to come to Christ. He is the way that we change these hellish qualities, these vices. And yes, I'm going to mess up. I'm going to eat from the tree of knowledge. But every time and every day that I do that, God calls out, Brandon, where are you? And every time I run further into the trees, I harden my heart against God and I move closer to hell. But every time I say, I am so sorry, and I come to him and I say, thank you for your forgiveness. Please make my heart right. I am taking steps toward heaven. The gates are never shut. God never shuts the gates on you. It doesn't matter how long you've been sinning or where you've been or how hard your heart has been against God. The gates of the new Jerusalem never shut. You right now can come out of hiding. The cross shows us who the real monster is. God was never the monster. Sin lied to us. Sin made us think he was, but he the whole time was putting his arms out. Where are you? Then on the cross, he's putting his arms out. I love you. And then in the new Jerusalem, the gates open. I want you. And well, we might feel like a bunch of failures. But remember the, the gates we heard about there? All carved out of pearl? I, I actually misread. I, I read too late. I, I missed some of these verses. Um, but here's, here's what we should have read. In 21.12, It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. Friends, the gates of heaven, the gates of the new Jerusalem on the new heaven and new earth are the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, go back in Genesis, go back throughout the history of Israel and see what kind of losers What kind of failures the 12 tribes of Israel were. They were messed up. They never got their act together. So take comfort. We must keep coming to our tree of life and depending on him, not on ourselves. Notice in 21 verse 14, you heard about the 12 foundations and all the beautiful gems, which by the way, were the gems on the high priest's breastplate. Um, so again, we have this picture of this is the Holy of Holies here. Uh, but those, those foundations, it says in 2114, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So the 12 tribes were failures. The 12 apostles were nobodies. They were nobodies. They, they also never got their act together. Jesus called them out of Fishing, most of them, some out of tax collecting. They were not very high up in the social strata. They were not very accomplished. They had not uh, achieved much in life. They were, you know, the fresh, soft B team, the JV team. They were the bench players. They were the minor leaguers or even undrafted players. They, they were not the ones you would think the savior of the world would circle himself with. And so here we are. God's not looking for great, mighty, righteous, upright people. He's just looking for us 
to need him, to depend on him, to enjoy his fellowship, not hide among the trees, not treat everyone like the objects uh, that our idols are turning them into. This is hopefully the encouraging ending that the Bible gives us. And so, friends, a snapshot of hell, not to terrify us, but perhaps to encourage us that God is not upset with us, no matter what we've done. He's only concerned that we don't send ourselves to hell. And so let's continue to love Christ together. Let's continue to confess our sins to Christ together. Let's continue to say, Christ, I need you. There are so many idols in this world. Protect my heart from loving even a single one of them. Let's continue to appreciate our identity in Christ. Not to try to make something of ourselves, but to receive everything Christ has made of us already. And we'll be fine. We'll be fine. All right. If you're still with me, um, I just wanted to, I guess, wrap up here with where we're going. I was so excited to start the Psalms of Ascent with you guys. That's Psalms 120 to 134. So I was really crushed to see it snowing when I woke up. I'm like, oh, man, that means we're like at most going to be only half of us there. And it was such a bummer to start the Psalms of Ascent like that. And then it's like, oh, well... Maybe I'll talk about this, which I'm talking with you now, um, to save it. And I don't know. So it's just a bummer. I was really excited to start. But that means I'm looking forward to next week. And friends, the Psalms, like, I haven't met anybody who hates the Psalms. And so many people in the herd were going to the Psalms next, because that's next in the Hebrew order of the Bible after the Minor Prophets is the Psalms. Um, they, everyone was happy to hear that, at least who expressed their opinion. People love the Psalms. I love the Psalms. But we usually love them for some individual psalms. Like, I love that psalm. I love that psalm. But I'm so thrilled because the Psalter, the collection of all 150 psalms, is incredible. I I learned a few years ago that there's actually a, an intentional structure to where each of the psalms are placed. And um, recently, in preparation for this series and for teaching others other psalms down the road, I've been uh, researching the five books of the psalms. And if you've never noticed this, take a look. There are they'll, The titles will be there in your Bible. There are five different books in the psalms reflecting the Torah, the five books of Moses. And um, it's just amazing when you study these. I, I thought I would give you a real quick rundown maybe of what's to come. Um, well, first of all, the Psalms of Ascent being pilgrim psalms. They're the songs that pilgrims would sing as they traveled to Jerusalem for their different festivals, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. Three times a year, they would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They're going to Zion, the mountain of God, where his temple is, where the Holy of Holies is, and they're singing songs on their way, right? They're excited to go. They're setting their hearts to Zion because that's their true home. That's their true identity while they're scattered around the world or living in the lives of this world. And... So we get to sing those songs. We get to study those psalms one at a time, one step up toward Zion at a time. I'm thrilled to do it with you. But um, the five books of psalms, you guys will have a handout uh, when to, to kind of summarize this when you come to church. But um, book one, you have a lot of psalms of struggle. 
of confrontation. And book one is really a collection of Davidic Psalms in which we see the confrontation of God's Messiah, his chosen king, who's first David, a symbol of the Christ to come, right? The confrontation of God's Messiah with his enemies. Then book two progresses. (coughs) It progresses to the communication of the Messiah's kingdom with the nations. So there's struggle with, right, the enemies, the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman. But then there's communication. In book two, we see the kingdom is more established. The sons of uh, Korah and the Psalms of Asaph and even Solomon make an appearance because the kingdom has been established. And so now Messiah is communicating with the nations. Then in book three, the exile comes. The devastation of Messiah and the kingdom in exile. And book three is full of mourning. It's full of what happened, God. They're crushed because the kingdom falls apart. In book four, we see the maturation, the maturity of the kingdom as it recognizes the eventual union of the Messiah with God's eternal rule. One day, in other words, Israel recognizes our kings will be ruling as one with God, with Yahweh. And guess what happens when Christ comes? He is Israel's Messiah and the Son of God. The Messiah and God are co-ruling as one. The nation will be okay. Israel, through the exile, learns to mature in how they're seeing this, that we don't need a human king. We need God's king. And they began to sing. There's a lot of themes about Yahweh being king in book four. And then the Psalms close in climax in book five. Um with the consummation or the realization of Messiah's kingdom erupting in climatic praise because they get it. And the Messiah is presumably is like forward looking to the Messiah's come. And so there's this outburst of hallelujahs in book five. And so much so that it ends with the climatic five Psalms, each beginning and ending with the word hallelujah, a great crescendo and climax in the book closes. Isn't that cool? The Psalms of Ascent land in the middle of book five. And so it's this call to journey up to Zion. Great fitting ending here, right? To the snapshots of hell. Don't go down, go up. (laughs) Go up to Zion. And that's what these Psalms of Ascent will encourage us to do. This yearning and longing for God's dwelling place. His home is our home. A return to Eden. We're not hiding in the trees anymore. We're coming out of the woodwork and we're moving up Mount Zion, singing these Psalms, letting them encourage us and instruct us as we go. So I'm looking forward to teaching and exploring these Psalms with you as a congregation, our 15 steps toward Zion. It's going to be great. I encourage you guys to read them and to savor them and to make these uh, your guides as we ascend toward Zion as we live in this world. So, so glad that next week we can be together to look at Psalm 120, the first one. And until then... May God's uh, grace keep you. May his peace surround you. And with grace and gratitude, this is Pastor Brandon McCulloch. Have a great evening. Thanks for listening.